0: getting let in on a little bit more of the story that God himself is writing. Uh, we see the story of God continuing to unfold with a king. Um, he's getting a little more descriptive, a little more close, and it's, a, it's an awesome journey to go on. Uh, but this morning, before we continue journeying on this story, I would like to show you a picture, and it is a picture of a young man who would grow up to change the world, Um, but first he had to wear Z Jags neon orange shirts and neon orange socks and so this is the young man I'm speaking of Uh, yes that is me as a sixth grader it is the first day of sixth grade it is a very unique day marking my life because middle school was the most miserable experience ever And and here's the thing. Yes, my style was uh, ridiculous, but before you judge, some of you wear very ridiculous things. So, um, but yes, that is the first day of sixth grade, uh, me sitting with what are neon orange socks, tight rolled Z-jags, and an orange neon shirt. Now, there's one reason for this ridiculous outfit, and one reason alone, because I wanted to be like everybody else. And that is the thought that drives every middle school brain in this room. Whether or not you are willing to admit it, as a middle school student, the one thought you walk with is, just don't get noticed for being different. Don't get laughed at. Do everything the way everyone else does. This is the middle school thought process. And you know what makes it even better is that we take those thought processes of all those sixth grade students, nobody has any clue who they are, and we shove them into a space with a bunch of other people who have no idea who they are, and then they try to tell each other who they are. That's middle school. That is a problem. Because when we drive with the thought and the process of, I want to be like everybody else, that's when things happen. And so what does this image, you can take this ridiculous image off the screen now, Brian. I'm tired of looking at myself. As cute as I am, um, it, yeah, there we go. Good. gone. So stop thinking about sixth grade Jason and listen to mean Jason, okay? Yes, that was sixth grade, very tiny, fit in lockers very well. Uh, that was a period of my life that I'm not proud of. Um, but the reason I show you this picture is very simply, Israel is about to enter the middle school phase. Really are. Uh, as best as I can describe it, as the best descriptive word I can give, is Israel is walking into the awkward middle school phase of their existence. You see Israel is delivered. They make their way into the promised land. But then you see this ridiculous cycle start. And it's a cycle that it seems to be on every page of the scriptures. As you turn page after page after page, you see this pattern You see, Israel walk in victory. They walk in, and they're blessed, and the Lord leads them with his own presence, and he does all of these things through the prophets and the judges and the priests. Israel has no king but God, and they start this ridiculous process of, well, when things go well, forget about him, and when they do that, they begin to worship the other nation's idols— And God's like, hey, don't do that. Look here and you'll get what you want if you keep worshiping those idols and they are taken over. And then they realize, hey, we shouldn't do this. Let's call out to God. Let's cry out to God. Let's get him back. And God raises up judges. And I'm not talking about judges like Judge Judy, which you're used to seeing on television. These judges were more like generals. They were the people who would lead the people of God against and out of this slavery. There were very important roles that God established. God was king, and he used these judges, these prophets, these priests to bring this freedom to these people. They would be free. They would repent. They'd say, God, we love you. We love you. And then things would get good, and they'd fall into the same cycle over and over and over. And that's where we see Samuel come into the picture. It's very interesting because we read over a lot of people in the story of Judges. I would encourage you to read through it. Gideon is one of the most incredible stories of God working through weakness. There's Ruth. There's all of these people that we see in the book of Judges that God uses in amazing ways. But at the end of the book of Judges, we read this verse. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, here's the thing, as a people of God, as the people who are supposed to be the ones reflecting God, this is not a description you want. You're supposed to be these people who are reflecting this God who's just given you the law, his commandments, he's given you his ways and said, this is how you be like me. And when you do screw up, there's sacrifice. I've established this way so that we can stay in relationship. We can stay together. We can stay close. And you choose to go your own way you choose to do your own thing. Now, even more that ridiculous than this re- this request for a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 5, you see their request. Samuel's at the end of his life and they come to him and they say, "Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. In fact, his sons were jerks. They corrupt, they were corruptible. They would take bribes, they would pervert justice. They were nothing like their father who walked with the Lord." And they said, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Now, even more surprising and startling than their request to this God who's walked with them is God's response. And this is how God responds in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. For it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Now, Samuel goes into this list and he begins to tell them Look, you want a king like the other nations? They're going to take your sons and put them in his military. He's going to take your sons and make them his servants. He's going to take your daughters and he's going to make them his perfume makers and his cooks and he's going to take some as his wives and his concubines. He's going he's to take your land, which is yours, and he's going to give it to the people he wants to give it to. He's going to give it to his officials. He's going to tax you unfairly. He is going to make you his slaves. Common sense says, I don't want that, right? Well, when you are blinded by something that you want so desperately, you tend to not look at the results. And this is what they say in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. Now, I'd like to try and give Israel a little bit of credit. And like I said... I, may, I, know, I know I may be taking some creative license and comparing Israel to a middle school student, but here, here's my flow, okay? When you're in middle school, you look around and you see who's on top of things. Who's the guy? Who's the girl who dresses the right way? Who's got the right clothes? I want to be like them. If I could wear that, if I could wear those jeans, or if I could wear that shirt, I'd love it. Israel saw the kings of the other nations. The other nations' kings, crowns, jewels, robes, power, might. Israel wasn't used to that. They were used to prophets and priests who dressed pretty meagerly. I mean, pretty nothing in comparison to what the kings wore. They looked around and they saw how kings were quick to make decisions. And when you're in middle school, you love that guy who does whatever he does whenever he wants, don't you? I want to be like that guy. He talks back to teachers. He does everything he wants. He's so cool. Remember, I'm talking about middle school students. You may be like, I'm so much more mature. No, you're not. You're not. We all do it. We all look around and go, I want to be like that. And for middle school students, you look around at those, those kids who do whatever they want. And you're like, ooh, the bad boys. I love that. I want to be like that. I want to act and do whatever I want, whenever I want. And Israel saw that the kings of the other nations, that's what they did. Whenever they wanted to make a decision, they did it. See, Israel was used to prophets and priests seeking the Lord and then sitting together. And the decision-making process took longer. They didn't act quickly. They waited on the Lord. And so they wanted to move quick. You know, when it came to battle, the other nations, they, they had swords and catapults and horses and might and power and strength. If you were in the Lord's army, you were oftentimes given a horn and a clay pot with a candle in it to go to battle with. I mean, seriously. Imagine yourself being handed a clay pot with a candle in it, and going, yeah, "This is in your face!" Ah, your battle cry with a clay pot with a candle in it. Seriously. I mean, it's no wonder Israel's looking around, going, "I want I want a I big sword. I want, I want to be powerful." But they were looking around and looking at the qualifications of the other nations and going, we want to be like that. See, the problem isn't the fact that Israel wanted a king. In fact, in Genesis, way back, the Lord talks about a king in Israel. But the problem was the motivation. The problem was that Israel wanted a king like everyone else. Newsflash, Israel, you are not like everyone else. You were called A different people. But yet Israel continued to ask for what they wanted. Um, Israel wanted a king. And the Lord allowed them. I don't understand this because when you look at the whole big story that God is telling in the scriptures, it looks like his plans are broken. It looks like the people screwed everything up. But it's not the case. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced, uh, and, and obviously we live in the New Testament time when we see Jesus and this fulfillment of all this stuff, and we're kind of embracing that tension through this story. But what I see is a God whose plans cannot be broken, but I do think his heart can be. And what I mean by that is I'm pretty convinced that the worst thing God can do to us is to give us what we want if it's not him. And we see it over and over. And I see it all the time with working with teenagers and people in general. We run after these things that we want so desperately and it's killing us. But we're so blinded by it, we just keep running. And the Lord says, look, you get what you want. Israel saw the kings of the nations around and the Lord said, okay, I will give you a king who matches all your qualifications and you will see that it is a problem. Now, but for those of you that have children, you'll understand this. For those of you that don't, let me, let me open your eyes to some things. I have a five-year-old, and he continually teaches me about myself, my relationship with the Lord. And Zeke loves, right now, obsesses over the Dollar Tree. Um, and I know why, because there's a lot of stinking power in a dollar. You walk into that store, and you can buy one of anything you want, can you go into Best Buy and do that? No, you can't. You walk in with a dollar, you're not walking out with anything. You go to the Dollar Tree, you can buy one of anything. Anything. It's so exciting. And when Zeke walks into that store, I mean, he runs straight to the worst possible choice. I'm like, son, look, please hear me out. And I know you don't think with reason. And I know you don't listen to me. Don't buy that toy. Here's why. Why? In two minutes, it will be broken. In two minutes, you will understand that you don't want this. Do, do yourself a favor. Buy the candy, okay? At least you know the candy is supposed to be eaten and digested, and you're not going to have anything, but you're going to have some good tastes. Buy the candy. Don't buy this toy. And I kid you not, every single time we get in the car, I open it, I hand it to him. Three minutes down the road, um, dad, uh, this thing's it's not working. Can you fix it? son I told you don't get the toy he's like but dad can you just can we can can you fix this if you can fix it why didn't you let me get the candy dad I was the one who suggested the candy don't say I didn't let you get the candy I suggested it you chose poorly and you're dealing with the consequences of your choices and honestly Israel gets something that they want but the consequences are grave. And so we see Samuel meet Saul. And I want you to remember, Saul is a man who meets the qualifications of the people, not God. It comes into play in a very big way. Samuel uh, anoints Saul. And Saul comes into the picture really quickly and Uh, There's an immediate need. There's an actual foreign nation threatening Israel. And their threat is, we're going to gouge all of your right eyes out so that you're marked and you're shamed before all the other nations. And Saul's like, no, no, you're not. And they go, and they go into this victory, this battle, and it's a quick win, and everything looks good. Samuel gets up. He's passing. His time is passing, and he's about to end his life. So he gives this awesome farewell speech. I'd encourage you to read it sometime. But he talks about remembering all that the Lord brought them out of Egypt and how even though you've turned from God and asked for a king, he will listen to you. He will, if you will just repent, if you'll just turn to him, if you'll run to him, he will be soft towards you. Just listen to his voice. It's a pretty cool speech and the people actually respond to it. They do, they begin to repent. And I kid you not, it's, nothing, it's, it's mere breaths later when Samuel is done that Saul forgets everything that he's learned everything that he's been told. And Saul begins to do things his own way. Now, I do want you to remember, I have to say this multiple times, because we're wicked, we're sinful, we're going to look at God and we're going to blame God for putting Saul in position of power, knowing that God, knowing that Saul would fail, because that's the way wicked people think but I want to remind you that God gave the people a man of their own qualifications. When you ask for the wrong thing, you get the wrong results. When you ask for a God or a king or something by your own qualifications, it should not surprise you that they fail. We are so quick to point blame at God when all God did was he did what they asked. But because we're blame shifters and we're sinful, we love to point fingers. But might I remind you that all God did was give the people what they asked for. So we see this developing. We see that Saul does things hastily. He he doesn't obey the Lord in commands that he gives. He actually tries. He makes a sacrifice, which is not a position for him to be in. And we see Samuel encounter Saul. And this is what he says in chapter 15 verse 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Listen to verse 23. I don't think we get this. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now Saul was also guilty of trying to, well ultimately he was reflecting the characteristics of the little g-gods of the day. He was not reflecting the God of the Bible. Saul was fickle and he was greedy and he was vindictive and he was stubborn. And you know that actually mirrored the gods of the day? When God has been introducing himself to to us as a God who is not like these gods. The other reason that I see that Saul was treating God as a little g God was because Saul was all about sacrifice and ritual. All he wanted to do was sacrifice and do a ritual before the Lord. Hey, if I do the right dance, pull the right strings, put the quarter in the machine, I get my blessing. Cool? See you on Sunday. That's all Saul wanted. And again, may I remind you that God is revealing, I'm not interested in your sacrifice and your ritual. I'm interested in you knowing me, hearing my voice, and reflecting me. You see, when we, when we create these man-made gods, of course we're going to make them easy to serve. Of course we're going to go, all right, all I got to do is a little ritual, show up on Sunday, give my money in the basket, and I'm good, right, God? We'll see you. If it's a man-made God, why would I ask anything of myself? Sacrifice and ritual. That's all I want to do. But yet this God of the Bible tells us obedience is worth way more than any of your sacrifices, your routines, your rituals. I just want you to hear my voice. And that is unlike any other God. Saul was treating God like a little G God. So with Saul's removal, what is God up to? It obviously looks like his plans are broken, doesn't it? I mean, you've got these people in a spiral. But what God was doing was he was saying, this is not the man. You wanted this man? Now I'm going to introduce you to the man I would like to be king. And you see in verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, But now, Saul, your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. God's setting the stage for what his king will be like, and it will be a man after his own heart. Unlike David, unlike Saul, David really did trust the Lord. See, Saul almost kind of totally trusted the Lord. And he thought that that wouldn't mean anything, but it was disastrous for him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, we see a declaration that David makes that my prayer is our heart as his church will be this responsive. He says very simply, how great are you, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. Why do I want to be a part of a community of people who are looking at this God? Because we've never heard of a God like him. Why do I want to love my family well? Because we've never heard of a God like him. Why do I want to serve? Why do I want to give? Why do I want to worship with everything that I have in me? It's because we've never heard of a God like him. Every God we've ever seen or known is selfish, abusive, But yet there's this God who we have never heard of. We don't know anything like this. And would this be our response as, as, a, as a highland, as a, as a church, as the body of Christ in Asheville? Would this be a motivation that how great are you? There's no one like you. But what we do is we struggle with that almost totally giving ourselves to him. And when we struggle with the almost totally, we're saying there are other gods like you, God. Isn't that what it's boiled down to? We're saying that there are other things that are going to satisfy just as much as you. We're compromising because we're convinced that there are other gods like God. See, this is the root of idol worship. When we're convinced that there's something or someone greater, better, or bigger than this one true God who's revealing himself to his people. Um, David's road to the kingdom was a very difficult one. In fact, when Samuel went to anoint the king, he went to Jesse's family. And there are all these big dude brothers who are like big and huge and awesome. And, and uh, even David's dad's like, you know, David's a good boy and all, but he's a runt. He's tiny. I don't know if that's the one you want. And look what the Lord says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, For I have rejected him. He's talking about Jesse's older sons. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Israel looked for a king with the right look, God was revealing a king with the right heart. That's where he was headed. Now, I mean, if you're David, you're 16 years old, walking in from tending to the sheep, and you're in your house, and everybody's chilling and sitting, and there's this old man who just walks up and starts pouring oil on you, I'm thinking, dude, what is going on? This is a little weird. Old man in my house, pouring oil on me. Dad, somebody help me out. What's going on? You're the Lord's anointed. David had been anointed king while there was still another king in office. The road to the kingdom was not easy either. If you look at David's life, he was lied to, hunted, set up, cheated. Uh, I mean, just all these different attempts on his life. For 14 years, he lived in that struggle. Now, if I'm the Lord's anointed, and this is the path that I'm given, you better think I'm going to get a band of guys together. I'm going to get picket signs. We're going to charge the castle, I'm going to take over because I'm the Lord's anointed. But you don't see that from David. Because David trusted the Lord. In all that was going on, David looked at the Lord and said, I trust you. I believe that you will do what you say you're going to do. Another thing that separated David from Saul is a huge separation. I think sometimes we think that when we read a man after God's own heart, we immediately run to to David's behavior. Somehow David behaved better than everybody else. Might I help you shift your eyes from the lower story of David, but up to God and go, a man after your heart, a man after your decisions, you're the one who's going to put this person in place, not us. We're looking for a man that you want, not that we want. And that's the journey David goes on. Because you and I both know of his greatness and the good things he did. But you and I also know the scandal. You and I also know the atrocities David was responsible for. And if you're looking for the Bible to be this moral code book, you're wrong. Because it's full of people making terrible decisions. But it's full of a picture of a God who runs after these people who make terrible decisions thanks be to God that his desire is for us when ours is not for him. You see something about David in Psalm 51. This is after he has had an affair with a married woman. He's murdered her husband and he's tried to cover it up and he's been found out. And listen to his heart in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in whatever you say, and your judgment against me is just. And what I see about this God in scripture is a God who is very much concerned, more concerned about how we respond to our rebellion revealed than he is on bringing a whip, than he is on bringing punishment. Because you look at David and his heart was teachable and humble. And the Lord is so quick to offer forgiveness You see, Shannon, our senior pastor, has said it many, many times that when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't separate people into two groups of good and bad. What he did was he explained that there are the proud and there are the humble. There are those who, when their rebellion is revealed, they point fingers, they make excuses, they slide a little bit and say, oh, that's not me, it was somebody else. Or there are those who go, you're right. I'm done. I, uh, I've sinned against you and you alone. And um, if you'd be willing to offer me forgiveness, I'll take it. But if not, you have every right to extend judgment on my life. And what we see in Scripture is a God who is quick to forgive. He is not slow in his promise to forgive. In fact, when we confess and our hearts admit that against him and him alone we have sinned, he is quick to bring forgiveness. The band is going to come and we're going to just spend some moments in just response. But I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Avengers, I've seen it a a billion times already just because I'm a superhero nerd and I love it. But there is a scene in that movie that I believe speaks an unbelievable truth that we will miss if we're not paying attention. And the villain in the movie, his name is Loki, and he's come to earth to rule the earth. That's what he wants to do. And he's got these people in Germany all in this little circle, and he says to them, "Kneel." And he threatens them a little bit. And they actually do kneel. And they're, they're in this kneeling position. And Loki looks at them. And he says these words. And I had to write it down. Because it's, it's unbelievable truth to the huma- humanity in general. And I think we'll miss it. Because we're just like, ah, it's a movie. But movies reflect a lot. If you're paying attention. And Loki says, is this not your natural state? You crave subjection. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. That is as true a statement coming from a movie as you'll ever hear. You and I were created to walk with a king in mind. And if it's not the God of the Bible, the king who's declared himself, I'm coming and my kingdom is going to last forever, it's some other king. You and I walk with a king in mind. And for you, it may be popularity, it may be wealth, it may be money, it may be comfort, it may be success, it may be sex, it may be power, it may be girls, it may be guys, it may be popular, all of the things. And some of you, you're... We're wicked enough to believe that I don't serve any of them. I'm my own king. You're still a slave. Because when your kingdom comes under attack, what do you do? You go to battle for it. When somebody tries to explain to you, hey, this isn't working out for you, you get defensive. You start pointing fingers. It's because you worship yourself. Even in our attempt to say, I'm free from kings, you've just bound yourself to the worst king possible, you. You and I were created to walk with a king in mind. And it's a very simple truth, folks. The right king brings freedom. The wrong king brings slavery. And according to the scriptures, there is one king who brings freedom. Then that means all other kings will crush you. All other kings will treat you harshly when you fail them. All other kings will demand from you your whole life and yet we complain that God would ask us for our whole life it's because he knows that his burden is light and if you will walk with him and know his voice that's what you're invited into first John sums it up very simply and I know that it's a simple verse but it's the battle we will fight till the day we die It says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Seems so simple, but it's the most difficult task on the planet because we'll try and we'll fail and we'll try and we'll fail. But thanks be to God that he is quick to forgive and quick to invite us to repent. So this morning as Nate's going to finish and and a song is going to be played and You're going to hear words confessing some things on the screen that maybe you don't agree with. Maybe you need to sit there and repent. Maybe you need to say, God, I have been looking to everything else but you. I have acknowledged so many other things as kings and gods in my life. Maybe you're not in a very difficult spot. Maybe everything is good for you. Are you Israel when everything is good? You're just not looking at him? You've forgotten about him? You don't care about him? Repentance is a gift from God to us. To be able to say, God, I have thought of myself and you in a wrong light. I need to think the way you think. I need to think of you in the way you think of me. I need to think your thoughts. And it's impossible without him. Maybe during this response song, you need to stand and confess those things to the Lord in your heart or maybe you need to kneel at this space that's available maybe you just need to move and grab someone and say pray for me walk with me I'm I know what I'm doing (laughs) and I'm getting the results of what I want things aren't so good would you be quick to repent this morning would we be a people like David who yes because I was a man after God's heart because he was a man after God's heart didn't mean he was perfect He screwed up a lot, but when his rebellion was revealed, repentance was his response.